0: Hello and welcome to the Fizzy Sherbert podcast, an international platform for women writers and directors. Every week we pack in a ton of Audible treats, including a new short play, an interview with the playwright and a further interview with a special guest. Sometimes it's a theatre person, but not always. We're
1: here to provide a platform to inspire and for a great time. Join us for the series.
0: Let's get frizzing. This is episode five of our pilot series. Throughout this series, we are sharing plays by playwrights from South Africa, the US, UK, Denmark, Germany, Hong Kong, and Australia, directed by directors from around the world. The Fizzy Shabbat Podcast is hosted by three conceptual
1: badasses. British German director Lily McLeish, German-British writer Tamara von Werten, and British Australian actor and writer Josephine Staart. This
0: episode is hosted by Tamara von Werten and Lily McLeish. Today, we will be listening to the play Jellyfish Blooms by Marie Björn. The message from the sea in Jellyfish Blooms is, we're taking over your world, you're dying out anyway. After the play, we will be talking to writer Marie Björn and special guest Heather-Anne Swanson. Jellyfish Blooms by Marie Björn
2: to understand that this story can't be told in 10 minutes. It can't. But we're doing it anyway because the way we see it, 10 minutes isn't 10 minutes and time isn't time. We're the future. That's why we're here. And that's why this story can't be told in 10 minutes. Because When you speak of the future, you need to speak of the past and the time before the past. We're here to talk to you about something which is happening right now and has been happening for 60 billion years. Just to make things clear, we're not human like you. We're jellyfish and we've left the ocean to come and talk to you. We are umbrellas-shaped bells and tentacles. We are all the colors of the world. Some of us luminous and bright, others transparent like rain. We don't have a right or left side, no head or abdomen. Instead, we have four parallel brains Our body consists of structures that process information from all four corners of the earth. We've been hearing stories of you for so long and now we want you to tell stories of us. We've grown and multiplied. During the last seconds, minutes, hours, our numbers have doubled in ten hundreds of thousands. This is the boom and bloom of our spaces as we've only just come alive. We remember the first time you take any notice of us and how it terrifies you. Do you remember? You're staring at the surface of the sea when you find yourself eye to eye with a nightmare. You weren't aware we could expand this way that such monsters could exist, that your weight in the world has made us grow and multiply almost endlessly. We remember your terror, as if we are a long lost memory. You're yelling, what on earth is happening to the jellyfish? You're throwing up. Our umbrella-shaped bells are struck by the big stream of your vomit. You need to sit down for a minute. Just a minute. You're saying It's nothing serious. But you're holding your head in your hand and you're saying, Isn't it warm in here? No one's answering. So you decide to raise your voice. And you're yelling. Won't somebody please open a window? Is it too much to ask? Won't somebody get off their dumb ass and open the windows? And your stares at you in confusion and replies, there aren't any windows out on the ocean. <laughs> you start laughing. We can hear you laugh and we start laughing too. It's wonderfully difficult to grasp The magnitude of our transformation, the extraordinary amazingness of our lives. Can we handle all this daily that we got, with or without the vomit on our umbrella-shaped belt? You clear your throat and compose yourself. And you say, this is just an isolated incident. The fact that we've grown out of proportion must be a glitch in our structure. There is a glitch and it's causing this sick, almost vulnerable condition as we reach a size of 3 meters in diameter and spout poisonous tentacles more than 50 meters behind us. But we've come to tell you that this isn't an isolated incident. We've been living as polyps on the ocean floor. You know, it's a part of our cycle. And the idea is conceived here on the ocean floor. We're having an idea. It's rather small in the beginning, but it grows as we grow in size. The idea is to take over your world through sexual reproduction and mass expansion. An ocean revolution of sorts. We're taking back the planet, Blue Hope, eating the last remains of your rotten paradigm. And in the meantime, we're experiencing an explosion of detail. Finally, our own beauty is beyond us. For thousands and thousands of seasons after seasons, we've been told the exact opposite. We've been nailed to the bottom, where no one can see us unless they end up down there. And they rarely do as long as they haven't been there in the first place. We have a confession to make. Our brains are relatively simple, but in spite of our simple brains, we're able to learn complex things. And right now, as we're lying on the ocean floor in shape of tiny polyps, we're learning the language. The language of the ego. We understand that our language doesn't exist in the same way that your language exists. But it's more readily explained as a chemical movement, something you'll never be able to interpret. We understand that we need to learn your language in order to explain that to you. We learn your language through rhymes, singing, snow can thaw eyes can know our love for you remains heartfelt we learn your language some of us better than others and we know you won't believe it you won't believe we're really talking you accuse someone of manipulating us into it the words aren't really ours they belong to someone speaking on our behalf you'll be thinking who is this somebody speaking on behalf of the jellyfish and telling their story? This somebody who's giving the jellyfish a voice, debasing them and robbing them of their original point. You're convinced that we don't have the brain power to learn such a complicated language, such as your own, that we must remain wobbling and pulsating somewhere beneath you. We know that we're really talking. We can barely manage to stay alive in order to tell you everything there is to tell you before the oxygen runs out of our tissue and falls to the ground and it dissolves. But please understand, we're just a drug in the ocean and we are reproducing all the time. The revolution is born in one big, queer oxygen bubble. So when we're not here anymore, more and more of us will rise up from the sea. In the end, they'll witness your surrender. We're more than you. We're so many. We're the oldest organism in the world and the world was ours from the beginning. We considered adapting new methods of war driving trucks against crowds, placing bombs on trains and in terminals, yelling, make fascism fast again. But we'd rather just lay everything out in front of you. We're taking over your world. You're dying out anyway. We're taking back what's ours. Our tentacles contain nettle cells, specialized cells, used to burn our prey. We catch our prey and burn it. It might sound a bit abstract, but it looks like fireworks when you're in the middle of it. As we hug our huck a skin dissolves and exposes the bone marrow, your eyes overflow. Need me say more? also break easily. We do. The worst thing that can happen is getting caught right where the waves break. Then we are torn to pieces as biochemical signals are transmitted to our nerve cells and shout, Danger! Stay close to the shore! But we don't feel pain in the same way you feel pain. We do, however, experience it as a shock to the system. We hardly consist of any living tissue. You can call us a porous predator. We are porous and therefore incredibly efficient and specific, just like you. This porosity makes us very adaptable and poetic. We are very adaptable to change because everything is no more than a vibration to us. We experience everything as vibrations and we experience sounds as reflexes. The way things stand, we are dominating entire ecosystems. You've rarely seen a species guilty of the suffering of so many other species as if some sort of mirror image was created the first time we met. And we've taken a significant part of you. You feel left behind, as if you've lost something very important, which you do because we're the future and this world is ours. Thanks.
0: The reading of the play is directed by Anna Gervin and performed by Anna-Sophie Fredslund, with sound design by Julian Starr. The play was translated by Matthias Raven. We caught up with Danish writer Marie Björn. Born in 1991, Marie is drawn by the grotesque and magical, and she believes that reality is greater than realism. Her language is a mixture of the mundane and the poetic. In June 2019, Marie graduated as a playwright from the Danish National School of Performing Arts. This year, she's Rheumat-nominated Playwright of the Year for her debut play, Apocalypse, that played on a small underground scene in Ortense, Denmark, in February 2020. Marie is also studying scriptwriting at Super 16, a community of young filmmakers in Copenhagen. She is very drawn to collective and cross-aesthetic collaborations. So Marie, lovely to have you on our pilot season and see. our episode five. <laughs> yes. We are called Fizzy Sherbet. And when we started out with our readings, we would give every audience member a lemon sherbet to eat while they were watching. So what we're doing is we're asking everyone to kick off our interviews. Do you have a suite that brings up a story for you?
3: <laughs> I immediately thought when I, when, uh, when hearing it, I thought about this, uh, Candy in Harry Potter with different taste flavors, <laughs> and I don't know. I think it's a good meta- metaphor for like my writing or <laughs> how I see lives or something like that. Okay, so, oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, the, really
0: it, it's the candy where you never know quite what you'll get. Is that? Yeah, okay? you can
3: get like butterflies or uh, a strawberry taste, but you could also get like dirt. And I, I don't know. I think it's a uh, it's it's quite humorous and. Yeah, I would I would go with that. I don't know what it, what what the name of it is. I, I think thought. it's the
1: every flavor bean or something like that. that. Is, that perfect. <laughs> yeah, it's brilliant. Also, Marie, we wanted to ask you, of course, what what was the inspiration behind the play and how did it start?
4: Yeah,
3: I began thinking of the play in this very hot summer of two thousand and eighteen, because I was reading a book that a good friend gave me that's called Arts of Living on a Damaged Planet. And I think the the under title are like monsters and ghosts. And by that, they're claiming that the consequences of climate disturbance is that we are like, that there will be born a lot of monsters, species monsters that are expanding, and then we'll have a lot of ghosts from species that are dying out all the time. And in that book, I also read an article about this phenomenon, jellyfish blooms, which is jellyfish, the species a uh, specific part uh, species of jellyfish that can like expand and expand and expand. And right now I like making a lot of problems in the oceans. And then I think I, I was doing a lot of interviews about with people working with climate disturbance or being like Activistically concerned about it. And I think what I found out that when you're digging into this subject, you start hating humans a, a lot. <laughs> and you, I think I was talking with one guy who said very precisely that, that it's a very hard time to be loving nature. And yeah. And all of this led me to the idea of just giving a monologue to the jellyfish. <laughs> and by let, let them like have a revolution and be like, you're dying out anyway. So let's, let's face it. Yeah, that was like the beginning of it, the heat wave. And then I was actually, I was doing a lot of interviews. It was a part of my third year program on the National School of Performing Arts. And I was interviewing different people and I was interviewing also a man who was studying some different jellyfish species things and after that interview I wrote it I think for just like overnight or something like that (laughs) 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 and and then it just yeah it stuck with me yeah
0: yeah I mean I love the fact that you've written the play from the point of view of the jellyfish yeah, and and also as a director I mean it obviously offers quite an amazing staging ch- or could offer an amazing staging challenge and I wondered if you also had a visual idea as you were writing it as well was there something visually that you were thinking about or was was it purely the character
3: or no I'm not very I'm not uh, that visual when I write uh, and I have a I've sometimes, stage directors have been like, ah, how, how can you <laughs> do this to us? And I'm very like, I hear, the, I hear these words and it's very rhythmic for me to write. And and it's not like, I don't really think it's character based. It's just like a lot of words in my head and it goes like, it has to <laughs> go, come out of me. But so I haven't really thought about how it should look, but it has been performed in different ways. I have been performing it with myself and another actor and then a shadow player because I was thinking of, of tentacles and the form of the shadow and then we were like having a, these um eyelashes on that were like a little bit like tentacles. I don't know. It's just right. like these threads of, yeah. But it has been performed in different ways. Um, mm. But I think when I think about jellyfish, just I think about colors and power structures and this ability to kill with like within a hug. So I think it's actually very theatrical. So I think there's great opportunities to like make something amazing out of this thing. This weird like weird species.
0: Absolutely, <laughs> definitely. There's loads of
1: potential there. I would yes, I think it's it's great to have a, such an open invitation to a director to do <laughs> yeah. something new with it. But I was wondering, do you have you written other plays, or do you often write from unusual viewpoints or invent characters that are not human characters?
3: Yeah, I think I do that a lot. Actually, I have been, for example, I've been inventing like a character called Fact once, but also one called Language. So I think the I think also because I don't think that character-based, so I think just of the abilities of the actors in, within the play and within the language that can like take over everything within these uh, frames. So you actually, you have the ability to be everything and you can be a lamp or you can be a jellyfish or you can be like, so I think I, think I often give like character something to do something not that are not a character in, in real life I don't know mm. <laughs> but also I'm very drawn to ghosts and dreams and nightmares yeah. and so
0: <laughs> yeah I was gonna ask you about that actually because I really love the way you describe your work as being drawn to the grotesque and the magical and that reality is greater than realism mm. and is there sort of yeah, are you drawn to specific topics or genres? So it sounds like you might be, but maybe mm-hmm. you would like to...
3: But I think actually this uh, uh, it, it's a quote, I think, by the Nigerian author Ben Akri, who once said that the reality is greater than realism. Mm-hmm. And I heard it once, and I was like, wow, that's my genre. <laughs> so I don't really... I always say magic realism, but I don't really know what it means. But I think it's the idea of letting more things happen than we often think can happen so I think yeah I really like the idea of, because I think my own reality is bigger than realism too and I think yours are as well because we're so much in our own heads and we're so much like we dream at night and we go out and we just think about ourselves and it's like yeah you can <laughs> the the human mind is like quite um quite unrealistic so I've yeah I'm I'm very drawn to, I think also sci-fi and the possibility of creating something bigger and a metaphor or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And
1: sorry, do you feel that because of your own reality, you're a Danish playwright, and do you feel that that locality and, and your background in the world also impacts your writing?
3: Yeah, it definitely does. But it's not like I think we're like the most magical place on earth. (laughs) 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 I think there is like this sadness to uh, neoliberalism and capitalistic modern societies here in the in the West. So, but I think I I yeah I grew up like a white female privileged child and from a middle class family. So I have like I've been I think interested in power structures for a long time and also in my writing so I've but I think there's something to this I come from like a a childhood with the ocean right there and you know I've been so nursed and we have this welfare system in my country that the whole world are looking at with amusement but in my opinion my own country had had like forgotten it um, or forgotten how why it was a good idea so I think in a time where we are so Inflicted by individualism and narcissism and, yeah, me, me, me. I think I, of course, I'm inflicted by this in my writing, both what I know of and what I don't know of. We all come with our different positions, you know, but I don't know where the magic <laughs> come from. I, it's not like, but I think it's in, it's everywhere. There is poetry everywhere also in like places where you have forgot. So <laughs> I think maybe it's it's the need to create something more than we just see that it's it drives me a little bit in my writing. I think, but I'm very intuitive, so it's it's hard to know what I'm Mm. explain what I'm doing. Yeah.
0: Yeah. We're at but we're obviously with But we're trying to create collaborations between different countries. And so I was really intrigued as to how you found collaborating with a British director as opposed to a Danish director.
3: So much fun, so much fun. But it's just like, I'm, I'm so grateful to be a part of this. And I really think you're doing a, an important and necessary work also in, in the times we're living in. So, but I always, I always find collaborations interesting and funny. And I think you have been very, it has been very easygoing and a mm-hmm. very, yeah, just a very nice uh, process. And, and my, uh, it turns, it turned out that my roommate who is, uh, my flatmate who is an actress and who had been like reading the text before in Danish, mm-hmm. she was reading it now in English and we had this very good talk with uh, Anna that. director who have been like to the place i've been (laughs) i'm born a lot of times so there is this community feeling of it even though it was on zoom you know (laughs) yeah but i think i oh i always thought about this uh you know there is this narrative connected to being a writer that you're lonesome all the time and you're sad Mm -hmm. and you and no one the world doesn't understand you or something like that but i'm i'm only lonely when i don't write so there's like when I, I write and, I, and when my pieces are read, I think, you know, you get seen and you get this community feeling in a lot of processes and also this. So I think it's just a privilege and, yeah, such a nice process. So it, it's a project, so it has definitely been very exciting to be a part of. And I look so much forward to hearing all of the other <laughs> playwrights.
1: Yes, absolutely. I feel like that as well, that there's this community or this world becomes smaller because you, um, you meet people through your work and you have like a real sense of belonging through that. And I'm really excited about extending that and, and making that stretch really across the globe Um which which is just hugely exciting for us. But Marie, as you know, um, both Lilia and myself have actually worked at the Danish National School of Performing Arts where you've just graduated and we were so struck by the amazing facilities and opportunities that the students at the school have and I believe it's really selective as well. So there's just very few students each year who are admitted to the school. I think it was 6 when we were when we were there and that's of course very different to how it works in the uk i mean in london alone there are so many drama schools and then a huge output of graduates which makes the industry incredibly competitive and what do you think are the strengths and the difficulties starting out as a playwright in denmark after finishing a course like you have and what's the playwriting scene like in denmark
3: mm, That's a big question starting with the first it's definitely been amazing to be a part of this school and as i told you before i'm always referring to it as like being an army in a good way (laughs) but still you have to like go out after and find yourself a little bit because i was in a tradition where we were six people selected into the school every third year and now it's two every year so i was in like the last group of six and i was very happy to being a part of a like a group. But I think they're doing the same now just by having like only two people in, in each year, but then they are having like a bigger class sometime, a bigger class with six. But I think concerning to the playwright scene in Denmark, it's like, I think it's missing. Not like it. it's not like there isn't any new pieces being put up, there is, but I think in london for example you have a much stronger tradition to also with the royal court and like i, I think you listen more to the important potency of a new new place and i think we're lagging a little bit behind with that in denmark and i also also when you compare it to germany but i think for example in germany you have this tradition of being led to art or led to the theater for like uh, healing your collective uh, wounds and I think in Denmark we use it a lot for just amusement and I think stories are much greater than just amusement of course they should also be funny or <laughs> interesting or whatever amusement is a metaphor for but I'm actually a part of a new started like activistic group called Dramatikens Hus and, and it's a uh, translated, it's a playwright's house. So we are trying to start a place where we can like, where playwrights and friends of playwrights and friends of, you know, a new place and stuff like that can come in and we can talk about plays, and we can talk about, interview each other and hopefully in the end, set up some place and stuff like that. So I think there is a lot of willingness in the playwright scene in Denmark but I think it's, it's missing still. I, I don't think there's enough right now. Yeah. It sounds great that you're setting up an, an initiative like that. It,
1: do to keep in touch about it as well. We would love to, you know, like if you're on Twitter or anything, connect with Sherbet as well. Because yes. it's really nice to see these things happening and change happening in, yeah, in different absolutely. places.
0: Absolutely. I think, yeah, I think as that initiative sounds absolutely brilliant. And I was just reflecting on how. You know, I am based in Germany and I, and I grew up here, so I know the German theatre scene very well. And I would agree with you that new writing is quite different in Germany and Denmark. From my experience of also just working in Aarhus, is quite different to the UK. And what I found when I was working in the UK is that I find also the access to publishers and new plays being published all the time is a real thing in the UK, which is I don't think quite the same in Germany. Obviously there are publishing houses, but I don't know, don't feel that they publish on a regular basis I think you can write to them and ask to read the plays. But somehow the distribution and the access of it is quite different to the UK. If you go to a theatre, you can you go to see a play, you can just buy the play text um, yeah. on the door. Exactly, or you can go to the bookshops and, you know, the plays are just accessible and available to purchase, which is sort of amazing. And I don't think it is quite the same in Germany. I don't think it is the same in Denmark, is it? No, no, no,
3: no, no. Yeah. We had, like, one label that were, like, what's it called? Where you could, like, buy plays mm. in, but it shut down and now there is some new initiatives working on it, but it's so hard and there's, it's, like, complete missing interest, mm. both from, I think from the theatres and from the audience, but I, I think it's like, or you say there is a missing interest, but I don't think there is, because I think it's a, it's amazing to have the ability to go in, see a play, and then read it afterwards. Also, because when you write, you have like, you write for some, so many levels, mm. uh, and I think the tradition of reading plays is very important, and you know, for hundreds of years ago, we we have been doing this, and we did it in Denmark with Holberg and it dug a dollhouse, and but now it's just, yeah, non-existing. But I, hopefully, it, you know, you can make, you can try to make to change structures sometimes. And I think mm. it's like a good a, a wave of change going on here, also in the in the theater scene, and a lot of in my generation's artists coming out and want to change and things
0: so and I think a necessary change I think like I think in Germany as well I think that there's a real sense of wanting playwrights to start emerging again and and feeling a real sort of longing for new plays and uh, writers to be supported as well I mean obviously directors it's a director led theatre culture here and which is neither is right or wrong writer led director led but I also think I think one of the things I teach at the in Ahus actually is the collaboration between writer and director on a new piece of writing because I think that is so integral and so essential to what we do is how we work together on creating a piece of a a production, a play, because the writing is obviously the source material, the source idea, but then it is staged in the end. So it's just how do you collaborate as several artists on a piece of work is really, really important. important.
3: It's so important.
0: Yes,
1: I also wonder if there's something about the work being translated into English and how that then can travel around the world in a different way with regards to publishing as well. I I work for a theatre publisher in the UK, Nick Hearn Books, and we sell plays in English all around the world. And there are so many different ways in which they are used so some people buy them after seeing the show because they want to just relive it or clear up a detail or something like that and other people um, are writers and they want to train themselves and they want to expose themselves and of course also you can read a play anywhere around the world when you can't go to the premiere wherever it's being staged. So I feel a little bit like we're trying to do something similar with Fizzy Sherbet in that we're making work that's very specific to one locality, like, you know, Denmark, Germany, or it has been written and set in that place or South Africa. And then because we're all accepting all the plays in English, it means they can be listened to all over the world, hopefully. and yes so it's really it's really interesting and exciting to to find that role as well and to to connect people in that way i was also thinking how it was for you because jelly blooms was originally written in danish and then translated into english and did that um did you feel there was a change did it change the atmosphere or, or what about it changed
3: um, it's my very good friend Matthias Rao, who's also a playwright and who I've been studying with, who translated it. And I think he knows my tone so very well. So it's very excellent translated. And also because I, it, it has quite a funny way of words being said. And yeah, so I think it was great that it was him who could translate it. But I think definitely it has the same atmosphere to it. It's always a little bit of, of change, but, but not necessarily in, like, a bad way. It's just, like, it gets a new vibe around it also in a new language. And for me, like, only, I only write in, in Danish, so it's, uh, it's just very funny to, like, explore. this <laughs> wonderful way of yeah, seeing your words translated and, and hearing them in a new way. So, yeah, I, no, I, I think it's, yeah, it was great, and you did it very well. So, yeah.
0: one last question for you which we are asking everyone because we are creating a pretty good power list now which is interesting women in the arts or otherwise who are you inspired by at the moment
3: this summer I uh, read a fantastic novel by a sci-fi author from Nigeria called Nedi Okrafor Okra uh, and the novel is called Who Fears Death and it takes place in a post-apocalyptic future Africa, maybe Sudan. And it's about a young girl with magic powers. And yes, yeah, she's sent out on quite a journey. And I, I shouldn't say that much, but it just uh, it's one of the greatest novels I've ever read in my life. And I'm digging into the topic of sci-fi right now. So... And I think as a playwright and writing for stage, it's so inspiring to read sci-fi because it's yeah, thinking out of the boxes all the time. But she sure, sure does, and I think it's yeah she's very interesting to. to sounds, yeah,
0: sounds brilliant. Sounds absolutely brilliant. I will yeah. definitely read that. <laughs> yeah,
3: yes, me too.
1: It was so lovely to meet you. Thank me you for too. coming on the program, Marie. Thank you. Director Anna Gervin tells us why she chose to direct Jellyfish Blooms.
5: One of the first things that most excited me about Jellyfish Blooms was that it had such a distinctive and playful voice. I always am drawn to work that's darkly comic and feels like it might be taking you on one journey, but takes you somewhere completely other. When I first read the text, we were at the height of the Black Lives Matter protests during the pandemic lockdown. And for me, from the mouth of this jellyfish came a protest speech, a warning from an ignored society a group that some people irrationally fear and as a result try to control. I mean, using that whole specific analogy doesn't hold up throughout, but there were many parallels for me in regards to waves of political movements, finding a voice or a platform to be heard. What Marie does so cleverly is put it in the mouth of a jellyfish, so we can sort of put a distance between the subject matter and the speaker and the audience, as it's so absurd, but then it makes us hear and think about the subject matter in a way that Maybe we wouldn't if it were a speech from a play about the female liberation movement in the 1970s or a 2020 play about the Black Lives Matter movement. We can laugh and it's okay. But is it? It's also a comment on our daily attack on our environment, which we can easily forget about from hour to hour until it stings us in the eye. One of the more selfish reasons I wanted to work on this piece was that I've been wanting to work with a Danish writer for a long time, as I have Danish roots, and wanted to spread my creative tentacles over there too. So I was so grateful that the incredible international Fizzy Sherbert platform has included a Danish writer in their pilot season. I so hope this is just the start of her work being produced in the UK.
1: Our special guest today is Heather Ann Swanson. Raised in coastal Oregon's patchwork of clear cuts and second growth forests, Heather spent her childhood wandering in industrially damaged places. Now an associate professor at Aarhus University, she is fascinated by how stories are embedded in bodies and landscapes. She is committed to describing entangled human and non-human lives in times of anthropogenic disturbance and environmental damage. Her forthcoming book, Caught in Comparisons, probes the transformation of northern Japan's salmon populations and the watersheds they inhabit. Thank you so much for joining us today Heather. So at the start of the interview we'd just like to ask you if there's any sweet that brings up a story for you. Oh um,
4: so many. Interestingly I didn't I came to sweets as an adult. Oh really? So I happen to have a really strong aversion to cocoa. And so as a child, I thought I hated sweets as a whole category.
0: Mm.
4: And so I've had all kinds of wonderful discoveries late in life. And so for me, I've, I've had my sort of adult analytical hat on while encountering sweets and they've been bound up with adult friendships and sociality. So everything from, and different and pla- as well as different places in the world. So my first encounters with sweets were actually largely in my twenties in Japan. So I had the rather interesting experience of meeting this, the quote unquote sweets of the West through Japan because when I was doing some of my research for my doctoral work and for the book that you mentioned in the introduction, I was living with homestay families in Japan and needing to eat what my homestay families were eating. And they would often go to the department store basements in Japan, which are these wonderful supermarket spaces with all of these delicacies, with all of these different histories. And they often include these gorgeous interpretations of of classic European cakes. And of course they embody the histories of Portuguese contacts with Japan, of later 19th century Meiji era encounters between the West and the Japan. And so there are all of these layered histories in the layer cakes (laughs) that one's eating. And so my first like strawberry shortcake was in Japan and all of these things and it was also how I came to know quote-unquote the West was through eating western sweets in the context of Japan. Amazing. So I know that's a long-winded answer. That is a brilliant
1: answer I love that and and it also shows so much about how you are approaching your work. I mean, most people just think yum when they're eating something, and you are analyzing it to its history and where, you know, the different cultural layers. It's brilliant.
4: Well, it's also, and it's also that I grew up, like you mentioned, in the in coastal Oregon, in a small town of about ten thousand people, and so I was always this strange kid who didn't like sweets, but it wasn't a big deal because, you know, in a small town, everyone knows you, so. From the time I was a when I was a kid, and like one of the other classmates would have a birthday party, and they would, you know, someone would bring cupcakes for their birthday to school. Then they would bring an apple or a banana for me. (laughs) So not eating sweets is also bound up to me with ideas about relationality and community, and knowing and difference, and also about generosity. So for me, not being a sweets eater like being a sweetseater eater was also about relationality and so I have wonderful memories as a child of American Halloween when you would go trick-or-treating and all of the neighbors knew me and knew I didn't like candy so they would have like I would collect I would basically come home with a fruit basket. That is so brilliant
1: I bet your parents
4: loved it as well and your teeth must be amazing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh actually and the few people who didn't know didn't know me as well then my mother had to eat all of my chocolate and candy
1: <laughs> I I have to say your work and research focus sounds so fascinating and we were wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about what you do so so what a typical day looks like for you
4: oh well I don't know the typical day question is really a complicated one right now I don't think there's any typical day when you're a researcher because academic life is, sometimes one could say academic life is tentacular, other times one could say it's just fragmented. Yes. Because it is about doing so many different, taking so many different paths, doing so many different things and there are all acts that I'm phenomenally passionate about and that are acts of world making. So it's about teaching. It's about supervising. It's about one's own research passions. It's about reading together with academic seminar and reading groups that one may or may not always choose on their, fully on their own, but being transformed by them in different ways, Att- attending seminars, hosting guests giving one's own talks and banal things like dealing with university policy, which are in some senses banal and also often the place where one rethinks their own politics in profound ways. Coming up against questions of like university sustainability policies and should they just be about whether we put our you know plastic bottle in the recycling bin or questions about gender policies and things so sometimes even those most sometimes an everyday meeting is a place where one rethinks their stakes their politics how, what's the interaction between research and other genres teaching is the same thing so at the very best An average day involves lots of different tasks that weave back into each other and make one think more deeply about the porosities between different domains of life, where one asks, you know, where one comes back to the title of the book that inspired the the jellyfish production, which is, you know, what are these arts of living on a damaged planet? Where one has, where the categories of work and life don't fall into neat boxes, but are braided together where one asks, you know, what is, what is meaningful work? What is meaningful life? What are we doing here? Um, Actually, it's not, what are we doing here? It's not the existential question of that. It's what do I do today? And maybe it's a question of, you know, how do I get out of bed in the morning? And once I've gotten out of bed, what do I do? It's not the, you know, what is the meaning of life in the abstract philosophical tradition, Mm -hmm. it's much more pragmatic than that. So that's, I guess, an average day for me is getting out of bed and figuring out how to get on with the day.
0: Yeah, very good. You just mentioned the play Jellyfish Blooms, and I'd love to talk to you about, you know, your take on it. And you are one of the editors of Arts of Living on the Damaged Planet, Mm -hmm. which is the play is inspired by. And one of the questions raised in the introduction of the book, which I thought was quite interesting, was how can we best use our research to stem the tide of ruination? And how can we get back to the past? We need to see the present more clearly. And I wondered whether you felt reading Marie's play, whether these were
4: questions you felt she was picking up on or... Absolutely. Reading the play, I was very much struck by her engagement with questions of temporality, which I thought was really beautiful and really powerful. And I think the book is very much about these questions of bodies tumbled into bodies and bodily connections, Mm. but also about temporal entanglement and the ways that time is not linear, but itself entangled and braided and multiple. Mm. And I thought she very much picked up on that and that that sensibility is very much present in the play. And if it would be okay, there was a line in the introduction that I, that for me is when I read the play, I thought of immediately. Mm. And it's, it's in the monsters introduction. It's just one sentence and it's, our monsters and ghosts help us notice landscapes of entanglement. Bodies with other bodies, time with other times. Mm. Wow. And for me, that, this, the moment I read the play, that was the sentence that I recalled. Mm. And that it felt to me, the play was very much embodying that sentence. And there's a way that that's the most ordinary of sentence. It's not, it's just an, it's just one sentence buried midway through the introduction. But it was the one that I recalled when I read the play. Mm, Monsters and ghosts. Yes. And it's also really
1: interesting to, to think about the play and the perspective shift within it and then to think who are the monsters, who are the ghosts and what is our relationship with nature. I was wondering, I mean, you've answered that really beautifully, but do you feel that there's another interesting fact that you can share with us just to, to help us sort of deepen the understanding of the piece because mm-hmm. you're coming to it from such a different perspective from, from most of the listeners.
4: Well, two things really struck me. One of the things that I really uh, enjoyed about Marie's play is the way she does capture the spirit of monstrosity and the monster that we were trying to convey in Arts of Living. One of the things about monsters and the way that we use it in the book is that it is not the negative scary monster of the horror film alone. The monster is a figure of entanglement, and that entanglement is both, that the monster is connectivity. Monsters are connectivity, they're entanglements, and that is precisely what is life-giving and it is the stuff of our world. It is the condition of ongoing survival of existence, of being. And yet entanglement that gives life can also, within projects of modernity and progress, when modernity and progress ignore those conditions of entanglement or actively seek to break them to create linear, monocrop, linear worlds of production and growth it creates another mode of monstrosity where the blowback of those projects creates the a monstrosity that then ripples through the connections so for us the monstrous is not evil in any way it's a much more complicated figure of entanglements and I thought that the ways that one sees the jellyfish in Marie's play is precisely this layered and multiple sensibility in relation to that type of figure. That I thought it was beautiful that it does not simplify the figure of the monster, but takes it up in the sensibility that we present it in the. In the book at at large and it was really gorgeous to see that and I think when people sometimes when they first hear the word monster that their very reading of it Mm. is coded through a particular western history that has made entanglement and connection scary Mm. and made it into the figure of the western monster where it's coded as bad Mm. And that for me was something I just wanted to point out because the play embodies that, but I might have a special appreciation for that sensibility because that was something that was really, really important to us. And at least for me, my understanding of uh, the monster and the monstrous is very much enhanced by Harriet Ritvo's work. And Harriet Ritvo is a historian that has traced the making of the category of the monster in European history in a really interesting and powerful way. So one thing that struck me when I read the play is that it very much picks up on the notion of a damaged planet is not only a story of extinction and loss, but also as a story of proliferation and increase and excess. And I think that that's a really important, facet of our present is that we are living in the sixth extinction. And extinction is a major concern in our present. Loss is a major concern in our present. But loss and extinction are also fundamentally bound up with proliferation and excess. And that's the proliferation and excess of progress, of capitalism, of growth, but it's also that excess of progress making its way into other bodies. It's the proliferation of the antibiotic resistant bacteria uh, in the industrial pig farm. It's the proliferation of crop diseases in the monocultural fields it's the proliferation of jellyfish in uh, seas where you have excess nutrients from fertilizer regimes as well as the removal of of other beings and of other kinds and i thought that that process of proliferation was very much foregrounded in the jellyfish play in a way that was incredibly powerful f- for me um as a, when i read it um,
1: yes i i agree with that it, it's a real power and presence and and that and everyone has sort of everyone is aware in some way of of that very visual thing of all the jellyfish in the ocean. And it's, it's all about the balance as well, isn't it? So if you have one thing taking over more space, you have other things that are pressed out of that space.
4: But I think the really beautiful part of the play is that it gets that um, proliferation and it's multiple layers and registers, Mm -hmm. which is precisely why genres of poetry, of performance art can be so powerful because they can link the multiple registers all at once um, and bring them into a common space where we do have the excesses of politics of progress and growth and excess violences of a political present along with the proliferation and excesses that those politics generate and that that contemporary formation generates in jellyfish bodies. At the same time, it also shows that that contemporary moment is not wholly contemporary. Mm -hmm. that That a present is always also, futures, and past. Mm. So, I think there's a way that that work of multiplicity and layering can be performed because performance is about performing bodies, Mm. um, it can enact that layering in a really powerful way. That we were certainly aiming for in textual form, Mm. in arts of living on a damaged planet and of course we were struggling up against the limits of the text we were trying to work with the multiplicity and nonlinearity with the two covers where we were trying not just to have two entrance points but to show the entanglement between monsters and ghosts to create a an entangled sensibility rather than just a two entrance points phenomenon that's also why there's art throughout the text Mm. is that we were trying to put, we were pushing up against the limits of the written word and the traditional book format, which is inherently linear with the line on the page. Yeah. Yeah. And it was nice to, it, it was very interesting to see someone else push up against those limits in a very different way and to experiment with them in a different in a different mode
0: yeah, I was, I was actually going to ask you this uh, one of the things I was really interested in hearing about because one of the things that really struck me was the directness uh, again in the introduction of, of the book was how much longer will you and I choose extinction and then I was sort of reflecting on that and reflecting obviously on how it had inspired Marie to write um, not that question but uh, the book had, reading the book had inspired Marie to write this play and then I was thinking how important is it do you think for playwrights and theatre makers or indeed artists in general really to be engaging with this very important and urgent issue and to try and find ways of communicating the issues and science in forms of theater or other art forms?
4: Well, I think it's absolutely essential, but I don't see it as an, you know, I, I, I would like to hope we're at a point, mm-hmm. although I know this is not uh, universal, but I would like us to very shortly be in a place where the general public, as well as the general academic community, gets that art is not about simplistic communication. Mm. That art is not about artists translating and communicating uh, academic research in any way. I see a really productive space emerging at the interface of what might be called a more traditional research and academic sphere and what might be called more traditionally an artistic sphere i think the borders of practice and research are pr- being increasingly and productively blurred they always have been mm. art is theory academic work is also an art of its own and i think this is really important to point out that i learn something theoretically and analytically by reading Marie's play. Mm. As well, I would as well if I saw it performed. And I think this is an incredibly fruitful moment for artists and scholars to work together to think about these pressing questions of, we're in a big mess. And of course the we there is, is problematic. There's many things we could say about who the we is, how it's configured. Hmm. is it a we at all and that is something that we take up in one in the book itself but that there are all kinds of pressing issues about more than human living that we're facing Hmm. and that one needs to bring all kinds of new collaborations into that to engage those issues so to me it's a question of of course. And it's wonderful to see that Marie is inspired and engaging with something in textual form. Mm-hmm. And for me, I feel that I'm equally inspired in my own research practice through some of the exciting and novel work that's going on in the artistic sphere.
0: We we were speaking to Marie earlier actually and she had a question for you, which was have you ever collaborated on an art project before like this? Or, you know, have you done something like this before?
4: Or so for me this is uh an, a little bit of a new space, but it's something that I'm currently involved with. Right now I'm working with an artist named Sonia Levy, who is based in London. And Sonia has been involved in a number of other, what one might call, art science collaborative projects. She's been involved with Bruno Latour's Critical Zones exhibit. She's also done some really wonderful work on corals and coral polyps and is is an incredible artist. And we're currently at work on a collaborative project together around water, introduced species, Britain's canals and ports, uh, infrastructures of imperialism, how to read Britain's landscape Mm. as a landscape that's entangled with colonial histories, in many ways taking uh, Arts of Living on a Damaged Planet approach specifically to British landscapes. And it's a collaboration with an arts organization called Radar in Loughborough, Radar Loughborough. So then the collaboration has been incredibly transformative for me. Sonia and I read together. We've been parts of a water-related group and seminar with um, Loughborough University as, and their Institute for Advanced Studies. So we did a reading group together where Sonia and I read and discuss texts, and she pulls texts that I would never engage on my own. I bring texts to the table that she wouldn't engage. It's been some of the most exciting and fruitful conversations I've had. And to think together, to be passionate together, to think across different domains and disciplines and backgrounds has been incredibly productive the answer to that question leads me really nicely into the next one, which is also going to be
1: our last because we are running out of time, unfortunately. So we are asking everyone to create the little power list here of, of telling us a little bit about other interesting women in the arts or otherwise alive or otherwise who are inspiring you at the moment.
4: Yes. So gosh, the list is very long and it takes many forms
0: Mm.
4: you know inspiration takes so many forms Mm. for me i'm inspired by people i know intimately as well as people who i know only through their work Mm. and i'm profoundly inspired by people who get up and do hard work every day even when they receive relatively little recognition for their work. And I'm profoundly inspired by one of my former bachelor's students who I taught a couple of years ago in an introductory anthropology class, who's active in the Danish Green student movement and really trying to do some interesting and thoughtful work. I'm inspired by my friend Meredith who is a biologist by training yet try- seeks to work across disciplinary boundaries between biology the social sciences and the arts in all kinds of creative ways and i'm inspired by a postdoc who i'm working with who is an academic and earned her PhD a couple of years ago, later in life as an adult um, after her children had left home and who's now applying for postdoctoral fellowships to do some incredibly innovative ethnographic filmmaking. I'm inspired by a PhD student who I've had the pleasure to work with as a visiting scholar in Aarhus but who's based at the University of Cape Town, but is herself from Lesotho, and is doing some incredible work on uh, dam building and water politics, and is working phenomenally hard to finish a really powerful dissertation on development and water politics in a very thoughtful and in a in a critical way that has really reshaped some of my thinking. And so I've certainly been profoundly shaped by the work of Donna Haraway and Anit Singh and their models of what it means to be a scholar and a person. But I didn't want to start with them because I wouldn't want it to be read that I'm inspired by them only in their textual forms or only as as theory, because I think I'm inspired by them as living, breathing, fleshly people, who, and much of that living, breathing, fleshliness does come through, through the word and the text, but also exceeds that. And then I'm also inspired by all of the other uh, women that who, whom I've just mentioned, and I'm inspired by them both through their prose and their work, or their images and their artistic production, but also through the ways they inhabit the world. Great. Thank you, that's a really amazing
1: list and we'll get all those names from you as well and put them on our website.
0: Thanks so much, Heather, it's been absolutely
4: brilliant. Thanks for taking I just want to say, I was inspired to see the sorts of practice that you're cultivating as well. Yeah. And it's so inspiring to see the, I mean, these are dark times, there's no question that these are dark times, and one really needs to hold on to the inspiring work that's happening in the midst of these dark times. Thank so you. it was great to see the feminist sensibility and the queer relationalities and everything that's bubbling up in your work. So, Thank you. but. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk with
1: you and well, have a, have a great rest of your day and thank you so much. That was really, no, th-
4: thanks. And thanks to both of you and uh, yeah. And hopefully our paths will cross again in the future.
0: Absolutely. I, th- I think so. Thanks so much for joining us. The Fizzy Sherbet podcast is edited by Julian Starr and Lily McLeish with intro music by Jane Dixon. Next week, we'll be listening to the play White Tuesday by the awesome Eve Lee and talking to Eve and her special guest.
1: For more info on Fizzy Sherbet and for tips on how to help support new writing by women and on how to contribute your own play to our
3: podcast series, please visit our gorgeous website, fizzysherbetplays.com.